This episode of No Bad Food is brought to you in part by Whiskey Lane. Are you a producer of artisan food or drinks looking to get your name out there? Look no further. Whiskey Lane's team of social media, branding, and marketing experts is here to help. They'll take care of all that stuff for you so that you can focus on doing what you do best, making awesome products for your customers. Here at No Bad Food, we know that buying locally made products goes a long way toward making our world more sustainable, and that's why we're proud to be sponsored by Whiskey Lane. So, what are you waiting for? Grab your nearest artisan cheese or homebrewed IPA and run to whiskeylane.ca to find out more. And remember, that's whiskey the Canadian way. Without any. You understand. It just takes a little time. It takes a little time. It takes a little time with me. I hope you don't mind. We'll take it slow this time. Hi, I'm Tom Zalatni, and you're listening to the No Bad Food Podcast. If you're new here, welcome. This is a show about great food and the people who love to make and eat it. Our mandate is simple, to explore, taste, and learn about food in ways that celebrate all the things that make it great. Every week, we dig into a different dish, meal, ingredient, cuisine, or piece of food media, exploring the history and culture around it, sharing favorite recipes, and learning from our wonderful guests. The only rule? You gotta love it. After all, there's no such thing as bad food. Before we dig in, I want to take a minute to acknowledge that the studio where I'm recording is situated within the traditional and unsurrendered territories of the Ganyangahaga First Nations. As settlers, I think it's important to remember when the lands we occupy are not our own, and to engage in conversations that challenge the colonial mindset. So I want to encourage you to take some time today and every day to reflect on your relationship with the land you live on and with the indigenous communities of that area. I just recently learned about a new group called the North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems, or uh, N-A-T-I-F-S, and basically their mission is to promote indigenous foodways education and facilitate indigenous food access. Uh, And I think that's really cool and exciting because I think as a person, you know, working in food media, I have to acknowledge that, like, a lot of the ways that we handle food here in North America are super duper not sustainable. And a lot of indigenous thought around food is really steeped in sustainability. It's really steeped in making sure that you're like, you know, not screwing up the place where you live by overfishing and overharvesting and like all of the things that colonialism and capitalism encourage us to do. So um, if you are interested in learning about what they are doing at, uh, oh, I guess that that as an acronym turns into natifs.org. So that's kind of cool. If you're interested in learning about what they are doing at natifs, you can go to natifs.org and join their mailing list. uh, And there is a bunch of info on their website to check that out. My guest today, Gabrielle Samek, is a baker, pastry chef, foodie, and owner of The Food Dorks, a group that runs awesome culinary events in Toronto. Now, obviously, those events are on hold until Doug Ford gets his shit together and COVID is more under control. But in the meantime, you can still follow her culinary adventures on Instagram at Dorks. that's L-E-S food dorks, and you can hit the link in the description of this episode for ease of access. Gabrielle and I go way back, and recently I noticed that she had posted on her Instagram about a plan to work through Ottolenghi's flavor. The idea of working through an entire cookbook is something that I've been toying with doing myself for a little while, and is something I think is really, really cool, but I haven't really worked up the courage to try it myself yet. So when I saw her doing this, I was like, oh, I should absolutely talk to Gabby about this and see if, you know, she has any advice or any thoughts or really just sort of insight on the process. Um, And I thought, you know what, maybe 
doing that on a recording would be a good way to hype myself up and maybe have you guys hold me accountable to the idea of doing it myself. For a little extra context, Yotam Adelengi is a legend. He's won countless awards for his books and restaurants, he's helped reshape the culinary scene in the UK by introducing them to flavor, and he's written countless incredible vegetarian recipes despite not actually being a vegetarian himself, because he just loves vegetables and wants to celebrate them and highlight them. He's also an openly gay celebrity chef, which wins him extra points with my queer ass, and uh, I just think it's really cool to have that sort of representation in someone who is like such a powerhouse in the food industry. During our conversation, Gabrielle and I talk a little bit about how this book, Flavor, which I keep forcing myself to spell with a U, because for some reason, despite living in Canada, where that should be my instinct anyway, I always spell it the American way. Anyway, this book is a great melding of Israeli and Palestinian cuisines, because Adelenki's chef partner is a Palestinian Muslim, and we sort of dance around the greater context of Israeli-Palestinian relations on this episode, because this isn't a show about politics, uh, but we also can't avoid talking about it a little bit, um, but we kind of stick to talking about it in a way that is hopeful because, you know, this is a joyful show and a conversation about the joy of food and the, the, the celebration of food. But, you know, we do have to acknowledge that because at the end of the day, the blending of cuisines can be a really beautiful picture of the potential for peace and cooperation between nations. And so I think it's important that we, you know, talk about that, look at that, and maybe even see how food can be a hopeful thing for us going forward. Anyway, enough rambling for me. I hope that you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Thanks so much for joining me. Um, thank you so much for having me on this first episode of your new podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, I'm excited. When I decided I was going to officially rebrand this, I was like, oh, I want to have a really strong start. I want to start with people who like really, really know what they're talking about. I want to have a couple of episodes that are a little bit more heartfelt and a little bit more about storytelling. And uh, you're one of the first people I reached out to because I n- have known you as someone who thinks deeply about food for such a long time. So I'm really excited to have you here. Not to put any pressure on you or anything. Yeah, I'm getting a little nervous right now. (laughs) (laughs) So how about just for starters, why don't you tell me a little bit about the book that you're working through and what sort of led you to decide you wanted to work through it? So the book I'm working through right now is called Flavor by Yotam Odolenghi and his uh, test kitchen chef, Ixta Belfraj. I found this book while I was perusing Amazon. Please don't judge me. I know <laughs> by local right now. <laughs> but basically, I own pretty much all of his cookbooks. So I've got Jerusalem. I've got plenty. I've got plenty more. I have simple. I have sweet. I have Nopi out of all things. Nopi is his fine dining restaurant. And I've got to be honest, none of those recipes are, are easy to work through. <laughs> But I came across Flavor while I was browsing online and I read some reviews, I looked at the cover, I read some recipes from it, and I also saw one of the videos that he made with some of the recipes in the book. And they were so complex, or so I thought. It was complicated, there were like, you know, 10 different spices in there. And the most interesting part of the book was not only the flavor, the intense flavor combinations, but also that all of these recipes, pretty much all of these recipes are vegetarian. Okay. I'm not vegetarian, but it was really interesting to me to make vegetarian food that is that is like more complicated than you could think about vegetarian food as being, you know? So like this book takes flavors from all over the world, not just Middle Eastern. There's a lot of like Central American flavor and like Southeast Asian flavors. 
And although the recipes at first glance appear very complicated, when you read the recipes more carefully and like read some of his tips and tricks for simplifying them, you realize that they're actually quite doable as long as you, you know, take your time and just really sit with it for a minute. Cool. I love that. Are you doing it like cover to cover or are you just sort of like hopping through, grabbing whatever looks interesting any given week? My food, I'm, gonna, I'm going to like backtrack a little bit here. Sure. My food budget for the past few months has been pretty tight. Um, you know, with COVID and like losing hours at work. So my sister and I decided to start splitting a box of organic produce every week from Good Food Toronto. Um, I highly recommend them. Their boxes are abundant and delicious and so much variety. And it's really, really cheap, especially if you're only two people sharing a large box. So we started splitting that every week. And so basically I go through what we get And then I went through this book and saw what kind of recipes I could do with the produce that they sent me. And then just kind of go from there. Like if there's any sort of uh, variations I have to make or any replacements I have to do, I can look through the recipes and see like what is the closest I can get to based on what I already have. Mm -hmm. And then of course I can go to a grocery store nearby and pick up whatever else I need. And usually that's like a very small group of items. It's usually like herbs and limes, so many limes <laughs> and just like assorted citrus and other stuff like that. Weird peppers, fresh lime leaves. Like, yeah, sure. The fresh near my house definitely has fresh lime leaves. <laughs> I feel like there is something so universal about having to run to the grocery store just to buy like the one herb or spice you're missing and like a couple of citrus fruits because I feel like every recipe maybe not every recipe but like most of the recipes that I've tried in the past year have been like yeah you need a lemon for this or yeah you need a lime for this and somehow I never notice that I don't have lemons and limes until I'm halfway through making the recipe and I'm like oh crap what do I do so now I've tried to get in the habit of just like buying a couple every time I'm at the store because like it's such a good habit to get into just to always have lemons and limes kicking around because they really add a level a level of vibrancy to your recipes that you didn't realize wasn't there to begin with exactly I think prior to COVID I was in the habit of buying groceries on a daily basis based on whatever I needed because my schedule was flexible for that And so I'm not in the habit of stocking up on, like, anything that might go bad. But, like, lemons and limes don't go bad fast enough for that to be a real concern. Like, you can buy them the same rate you buy garlic and ginger and just keep them around because they're not going to go bad that quickly. So I just need to, like, train my brain to do that. Totally. And then the other thing, too, is that once you start keeping lemons, limes, garlic, and ginger in your pantry or on your table or whatever like you're you end up using them so quickly because like they're they make everything so much more delicious like it's really worth it to just keep them around what's been the biggest challenge for you so far in working through this book i guess apart from like you know budgetary restrictions has there been like a a moment while looking through a recipe where you've been like oh crap like i genuinely don't know how to do this and had to like work around it to be perfectly honest no fair enough (laughs) (laughs) like i i i have to say like i trained in some really well-respected kitchens during my culinary stint in toronto and i learned a lot like the main thing with a lot of these recipes for home cooks is like temperature management time management it's all about being able to juggle like a few pots and something in the oven at once. And mm. for a lot of people that can be really, really stressful. It's not really an issue for me at the moment. 
but it becomes more difficult when I decide to do like three of these recipes at once. <laughs> I know that feeling. So back in the fall, I got Marcus Samuelson's book, uh, Rise, that's all about um, like black chefs and like black cooking in the Americas, like over history up to the present. And it features all these recipes that are like inspired by or like written by various black chefs in the States. And uh, there's one section where he has a few recipes from uh, Rodney Scott, who's a uh, pit master in one of the Carolinas. I can't remember which. Um, And I was like, okay, cool. Like I just got my like charcoal grill. There's a recipe for like ribs smoked on a grill here and like a bunch of sides to go with it. And I was like, I can do this. I can cook all four of these recipes in the same night that I've never cooked before. This will go well. And uh, it didn't. What happened? Oh, no. (laughs) The ribs I like slightly undercooked. They were still fine, but they were just like just right at the right at the bone they were a little under you know where i was like i bet if i had had these on for another like 10 minutes they would have been fine i lost i left off one of the sides because i realized like halfway through cooking that i was like missing one of the ingredients that was like it was hush puppies and like stuff that's like uh baked good that's then fried you really super duper can't like leave uh, you know flour out of for instance or oil i don't remember which one it was it was one of those two no that's kind of important yeah and then i uh i accidentally messed up while like I think I was having one of the recipes for like baked beans or maybe doubling it and I accidentally ended up just like way over seasoning it so it was like you know when you eat something that's so salty that you like can't swallow it that's what the hush puppies are for yeah it was it was just such a mess um so I have uh I have since decided that I'm never going to try more than one new recipe at a time because <laughs> <laughs> that's just a recipe for disaster at that point. So I guess uh, it sounds like you're like feeling fairly like equipped to handle most of what you're doing as long as you like don't get ahead of yourself too much. I mean, if I can offer any advice to the intrepid home cook such as yourself, mm-hmm. it's to prepare in advance. Yeah. Like you really got to get, like the, they the, call it mise en place for a reason, mm-hmm. you know, like it's it's super important to get that done if you're at all nervous about you know, cooking three or four things at once. And that's something that you have to practice when you when you work in a kitchen. Mm-hmm. So like if the recipe if, if you look at the recipes and you have enough, you know, bowls or dishes or like little containers to put all your seasoning in, like do that all first. Like absolutely by all means do that all first. I don't do that anymore because I just don't have the space in my kitchen sure. to have all my mise en place ready to go. And also like throughout the years of cooking, I've learned, you know, if a recipe starts with a base of onion, garlic, etc., like I can chop up the onion, put it in the pan, lower the heat, and then just like do one thing after another until all of that stuff is, you know, ready to go. And then mm-hmm. I can start working on other stuff at the same time and just like keep an eye on the heat, keep it on the pans. And that way you don't run the risk of like over seasoning, overcooking, undercooking. It's just, it's all about organization, which was really difficult for me to learn because I'm not an organized, I'm an organized person only in the kitchen these days. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I've said on the show before, I guess not on this version of the show, but I've said on the show before that I have, uh, I find the times when I'm most at ease in the kitchen are definitely when I either have hours and hours to cook or when I do all my mise en place up front. Because there is, I think if you're, if you're a super experienced chef who's got a lot of experience in kitchens, 
time management comes to you a little bit more naturally in the kitchen. But for me, like as just a like fairly skilled, but definitely novice home cook, I have a lot of trouble with the time management side of it sometimes if it's a recipe that I'm not like super familiar with. Like I can't grab a book and start the recipe from step one and have it go well, you know? That was something that I had issues with too, to be perfectly honest, even as a working cook, um, I would look at a recipe and I would try to find ways to like reduce cooking times and just make it go by faster right and none of that ever made me happy <laughs> you know like the finished product would always be fine but like it was never good enough hmm. so when i came across this book i made a few recipes start to finish following the instructions like pretty much exactly like i would read the method and then follow the method because once you like once you have a bunch of cooking methods down you don't necessarily need a recipe anymore mm-hmm. so like i would look at the ingredients i would read the entire recipe from start to finish, which I haven't done in so long. But I have to say it was really worth it because then I like I took my time. You know, I made three, four dishes, took me two and a half hours. And if this had been like a year ago or, or less even, I would have tried to rush through all these dishes as quickly as possible and ended up with something that is not what I was looking for <laughs> in the first place. So I was really inspired by all of these flavors and like the thought of feeding people like such interesting dishes that I really just like, I, t- I sat down, I read through them and I took my time and it was so enjoyable to just take my time in the kitchen. You know, it was really nice. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, the like ideal situation is one where, you know, I know what I'm going to make in advance and I've got all the materials I need for it. And I've double checked that. So I'm not going to panic at the last minute and realize I'm missing, say, oil for a you know, fried <laughs> recipe. Yeah, the truth is that you can't always plan these things in advance. And then you have yeah. to learn ways to adapt. And like, that's that's like the real, I would say, marker of being a skilled home chef. Like, mm. how quickly can you adapt to a weird and stressful situation? Right. Yeah, totally. And and I find that with most things, I'm getting to a place where I'm able to adapt to a weird and stressful situation. But, you know, on rare occasion, like if you're out of oil and you need to fry something, There's you gotta just change your recipe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> I can't melt down enough butter to deep fry something. That's just not an option. <laughs> feel my arteries clogging up that's the goal have you ever had anything deep fried in butter like is that a thing that people do you wouldn't be able to get the temperature hot enough before it starts burning yeah i don't think so no i've certainly had things like pan fried in butter you can like poach things in butter yeah with like an aggressive amount of butter like yeah that's oh certainly that's a family (laughs) staple for me yeah But yeah, I think it's definitely like uh, there is something to giving yourself the time and the resources and the space to just like focus on making the meal and focus on making the dish and really following that step by step and letting it take the time that I think is so like wonderful. And like there's a there's a meditativeness to it, I think, that is missing from like sort of faster cooking you know that's why i love barbecue because you can't rush a grill like you (laughs) i i cook on charcoal and uh you know i am at the mercy of the elements when i do that i have to hope that the wind is not going to make it take you know an hour for my coals to light up and sometimes it does and i'm just like okay well i'm gonna be out here for an hour and like it's just there's something about taking that time i can only relate that to baking by sure. like, being at the mercy of an oven that may or may not want to come to temperature within an allotted time. 
but I have to agree. Like you can use that time to, you can use that time to prep your meal. Or you can use that time to just like ponder life and its little quirks. And then it can be kind of restful and relaxing until, you know, you realize you're 10 minutes away from feeding people and you actually haven't done anything except ponder the transient nature of human existence. <laughs> Yeah. Which is kind of a reward in itself, you know. That's it. People can come and stand around while you finish cooking and they can watch and you can regale them with stories about what you were thinking about while heating up. People will always wait for a good meal. And if they don't, well, you shouldn't be friends with them because they sound like assholes. (laughs) (laughs) If you're enjoying the show so far, make sure to hit subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on so that you never miss a new episode. While you're at it, consider leaving a rating review on Apple Podcasts or sharing this episode with a friend. For every new rating or review I get during the month of May, I'll be donating $2 to The Depot, my local food bank here in Montreal. The Depot can turn every $1 that they get into $3, which means that your free rating and review will do $6 of good for a family in need. And uh, if that math isn't a big enough incentive for you, I don't know what is. Now that the show has been focused entirely on food for a while, I actually went back and noticed that most of the existing Apple podcast reviews are kind of outdated and talk about the show as if it's a comedy podcast. So if you've already left a review in the past, I would encourage you to take this opportunity to go update it. And I'll include that as a new review, even if it's technically just an update of an old one. So, you know, I will still throw a little money at the depot for that. You can read about everything that the depot is doing in the description of this episode as well. All right, back to the show. So Yotam Adolenghi is an Italian-German Jew who grew up in Israel, in uh, Jerusalem. And he currently lives in London with his partner and their delis and restaurants, you know, Nopi, Rovi, and the Adolenghi delis. So he met his business partner, Sami Tamimi, who is a Palestinian Muslim in London. I don't recall the year, but the two of them met at this like beautiful Middle Eastern delicatessen in London and they ended up working together and then they ended up starting a business together. So it's just like really, and then the two of them wrote all these cookbooks and they really play with the different kind of ethnic foods that come out of that region. And they created this beautiful partnership despite being from what we perceive as an extremely like tenuous political situation. Right. So it was really like, it was really gratifying to see this like Israeli Jewish man and this Palestinian Arab man create such beauty from all of these different flavors in the region and just like seeing how people can work together and how they come together through food. Mm -hmm. Um, That's always been a really that's always been a big passion of mine. Like I, I seriously, like there's nothing that you can't accomplish over a meal. Like the way, so my, my sister is currently working with a uh, Bedouin activist at the university at uh, McGill university. Okay. And from what I learned about her background in the Bedouin community, like big decisions are always made over a large meal. Hmm. And when you contrast, when you compare that to the way that we make decisions as, you know, big democratic government. It's so sterile, it's long and arduous and boring. And I gotta say, everyone always looks so hungry when you watch (laughs) them in a Senate or in a government building. Like they look 
miserable. It's funny that you bring that up because I feel like there are two places where you see a ton of people sitting and like, for the most part, you know, listening, but not necessarily speaking uh, and looking varying levels of tired and, and they're there for hours and hours on end. And it's, you know, Senate meetings like that. Uh, and baseball games. And one of those, one of those can be a lot of fun. And it's the one where people walk around selling food <laughs> and beer. Absolutely. The only difference being, well, I don't know if this is even a huge difference. Like, do you really need to pay that close attention in the Senate meetings? <laughs> Honestly, I think like, you could probably pay less. how much work actually gets accomplished? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, a Senate meeting is probably like about, you know, a minute and a half of paying really close attention and then like, a, you know, three minute ad break. And every 10 to 15 minutes, someone really hits it out of the park with something that they're saying. And you're like, well, this is so exciting. And then, you know, it changes over again. And you're like, all right, well, I'm going to be here for another couple hours. And then people wander through with snacks for everyone and then they pay attention again. <laughs> I think that's brilliant, actually. I, I think it would be really wonderful if we could have more, you know, why stop at Senate meetings? Why not go to lecture halls as well? Eat your lunch while you're listening to a teacher lecture you. I mean, I already do that. That's how I got through high school, honestly. <laughs> but yeah, coming back to the sort of um, the like geopolitical, intercultural tensions resolved over food thing, I think that there is something, especially in the sort of like, you know, Israeli-Palestinian conflict where like, their food cultures are different, certainly, but because the, like, I mean, the conflict is literally over whose land it is, right? So the geography and the ingredients available to them are, like, that Venn, di that Venn diagram is kind of a circle, right? And so having those two cultures come together and say, how can we, you know, as chefs who represent these two places that are, you know, very close to each other and arguing about whose land it is, how can we combine our cuisines with each other in a way that is beautiful and, and shows that sort of unity? I think that's such a, I think it's a really unique situation to be able to do that, you know? I would agree, except I think we're putting too much pressure on their motives for coming together in the first place sure. no 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 because because my understanding of their decision to open restaurants and delis together was not because they wanted to help you know solve some long-standing feud between what was originally very tribal peoples but rather they wanted to teach people in england how to eat properly. Because if you know anything about the cuisine in England, it's that it's like very brown and very basic. Sure. And like, you know, this this was a kingdom that had access to all of the spices of the Orient as they were, you know, like it was just like they had access to so many different cultures, so many beautiful foods. So how is it that British food is still so crappy? Right. Well, no, and, and I mean, I certainly it wasn't their, like, you know, motive initially, but it's a nice, like, side effect. The metaphorical picture that it paints of, like, you know, cultural unity. Like, it may not have been their, their goal to, you know, have a political message attached to it. It may have just been their goal to, like, teach the British how to eat. But there's still something really beautiful about that secondary thing. Oh, totally. I, I, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, what I really like about the intersection of their cuisine so the food in israel like there's no we we think of israeli cuisine as like 
falafel, hummus, chopped salads, like stuff like that. But the truth of the matter is that there's really no such thing as indigenous Israeli cuisine because all of the food in the settled parts of Israel comes from the people who moved there mm. uh, either before or after World War II. I think Michael Solomonoff did a really great uh, documentary about the kind of ethnic foods of Israel. So you have really big Middle Eastern influence. You know, you have Lebanese and uh, Syrian, especially mm -hmm. uh, Jordanian influence, Palestinian influence. And then you have the influence from the Ashkenazi Jews who moved there after World War II. You know, so you have like schnitzel everywhere. Right. It's weird. Like every other place in Tel Aviv s sells schnitzel. And I'm... <laughs> don't know why it's, I love that. it's delicious but it's not that delicious <laughs> but the most important part i think of uh israeli cuisine is the easy access to fresh produce mm. and how everything just tastes so much better when you live in such a fertile climate like right. i know that the, the climate sounds like unforgiving and and hot and dry but the truth of the matter is that if you go out into the desert there are farms everywhere mm. Like they produce so much fruit and vegetables in uh, in Israel. Like it's really mind blowing right. to see all of this beauty come from coarse, like dry sand. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I spent so I spent a month in this area called Ktsiot, which is like a half hour drive from uh, Beersheba, um, on a farm, a medicinal herb farm. So the <laughs> the owner. Yeah, no, not that kind of medicinal herb. No, no, yeah, too. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he grows, like, so much stuff. He has, like, the basics, you know, oregano, like, mint, lemongrass, uh, lavender, like, all of the normal stuff that we think about as medicinal or just, like, for cooking. Mm -hmm. And then he also grows, like, ashwagandha, which is uh, considered kind of a, a panacea herb to kind of cure all ills. He's also like, he studied Chinese medicine. He built the entire farm pretty much by himself. And then his brother owns a pomegranate farm just like down the road. Nice. But being there was a really special experience because you just, you have to connect with the land and you have to connect with this arid desert that you wouldn't think wants to grow anything. And then all of a sudden you're, you're planting little seedlings into the dirt and everything is around you is flourishing, especially the weeds. The weeds love that kind of climate. Yeah, it was just really special to see how incredibly well things can grow out there. Yeah, that's that really speaks to, I think, an understanding of agriculture, right? Like if you can live somewhere where it is difficult for crops to thrive and find ways to make those crops thrive, it speaks to like really understanding how those crops work. Yeah, so there's a huge agriculture, uh, like um, a technological uh, industry of, for agriculture in Israel, and they export a lot of their innovations all around the world. So wherever you see like a water dripper, like a hose with, you, you literally take a hose and you poke holes in it. Wherever you see that in, you know, the Canadian Shield or elsewhere in North America, like that was developed in Israel as a way to conserve water. Oh, very cool. I mean, they claim that. And I like the idea of this like DIY proving fruitful. Who knows? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I love the idea that they were like, if we poke holes in this hose, we'll save water. <laughs> okay. And then we can sell it to other people. 
okay, let's do this. Like, I, I think that's just really funny, but uh, who knows how it actually made its way over here. Sure. I like that version yeah. of the story. We'll go with that version Me of the too. story. Me too. Yeah. Okay, perfect. <laughs> so we're about to wrap up, but before I let you go, I wanted to ask, what's been, I guess, the biggest takeaway for you from this experience of cooking through this book? Uh, so I went into this book feeling apprehensive, and as soon as I started cooking through it, I realized that this is actually easy. You know, it's not difficult to make your food vibrant and delicious and interesting. I think a lot of people grew up with parents who didn't know how to cook vegetables in an interesting way. And so a lot of people grow up thinking that they hate vegetables. Right. I work at a juice bar at the moment. And (laughs) although I don't believe in juicing, we get a lot of people coming in here asking, what's your healthiest juice? Like, tell me about juicing. Like, do you have juices that are just vegetables? And all I can think is you need like one good vegetarian cookbook to teach you how to make your vegetables delicious. Because mm. juicing isn't going to do that for you. But sure, yeah. whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's a really fantastic way to, like, it's just, it's so innovative. Like it takes right. flavors from all sorts of cultures and makes them accessible to the home cook. Although if you are going to be cooking through this book, like, you need to be careful. Like you need to read the recipes. You need to make sure you have everything on the ingredient list. Um, it takes a little bit of practice and expertise to start like swapping ingredients out for something else. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when I first went through this book, I was just like, I couldn't possibly cook any of this. Like I don't have any of these ingredients. Mm-hmm. I don't have the patience. And on top of that, I don't have anyone to feed. And Although not having anyone to feed right now may still be true because, you know, it's a pandemic. You're not supposed to have people over. Like, right. these recipes are good for, like, you can you can cut them in half. Like, make them for two people. Make a single serving. That's something else that I've been practicing recently is, like, portion control. Mm-hmm. How do I make a dish for four people just for one person? And that is actually what I'm starting to practice now with these recipes. It's like, how can I make this just for myself. Mm-hmm. Changing the size of recipes is something that I wish there was an app for, you know, where you could just take a photo of the recipe on your phone and it scans it and you tell it, okay, this is for six servings, make it one, and it fixes it for you, I think would be incredible. That sounds so useful. For the time <laughs> being, I just use a calculator or, you know, I one tip actually that you might find useful, mm-hmm. I always keep a pad of paper and a pen in my mm. kitchen. And so I pull that out wherever, whenever I need to do some like basic math for downsizing or upsizing portions of recipes. I just rewrite the recipe and change the amount that I need eventually. And then I just have that with me while I cook so that I don't you know, make the mistake of op- opening the, the recipe to the page, opening the book to the page of the recipe and adding, you know, like six times as much salt as I was supposed to. <laughs> oh, so you heard about my baked beans then. <laughs> <laughs> I might have heard a little something. <laughs> oh, man. Well, hey, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for phoning in to share your story, to talk about Adelenghi's flavor. Before I let you go, do you have anything you want to plug or any like final words of wisdom for people listening? You can always find me on Instagram at Dorks. That is L-E-S-F-O-O-D-D-O-R-K-S. And I would like to take this opportunity to wish my sister Marissa the happiest of birthdays. I love you long time, and I look forward to cooking for you on your birthday. Lovely. Yeah. Happy birthday. Well, thanks again. This was awesome. 
Oh, my pleasure. Thanks again for having me, Tom. Of course. Anytime. Take care. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to No Bad Food. Did we miss something that you think should have been said? You can tell me all about it on Twitter and Instagram at Tomzalatni or at No Bad Food Pod. If you like this episode and want to help me make the show even better, you can head to patreon.com slash nobadfoodpod and donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll be joining the ranks of fine folks like Patrick, Gabriel, Kendall and Carlea, Thomas, George Poppy, Killian, Sarah Angelica, Anne, Andrew, Laura, Chantal, and David. Patrons get access to all kinds of awesome perks, including the ability to request topics or episodes of the show. So if that is appealing to you, you can once again go to patreon.com slash nobadfoodpod, link in the description. We also have merch, and you can hit the merch link in the description to get all sorts of great stuff from our lovely friends over at Public. And of course, you can support us for free by leaving a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice, especially if that podcatcher of choice is Apple Podcasts, or by sharing this episode with a friend. Our theme music is by Zach Ingalls, and our newly updated cover art is by David Flam. You can find links to support both of them in the description of this episode, as well as links to the food dorks. And last but not least, the show is produced and edited by me, Tom Zalatni, as part of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at upfordnetwork.com. See you next week. You understand. It just takes a little time. It takes I'm October Jones, Hi, and this I'm is- I'm Fish with Legs. I'm a fish with legs. Fish. I'm the elemental creature of water, and I'm here to tell you about my podcast called October Jones and Fish with Legs, starring me and my best friend, <laughs> October Jones. Nailed it. October and Fish is a fictional series that follows me and Fish with Legs as we try to stop an evil two-headed snake from releasing a terrible monster. And make friends, and go on adventures, and get captured a lot, and escape a lot, and encounter racism. And what? And learn very special lessons every third episode. I have not learned a single lesson. Yes, you did. We learned about being friends, and authoritarianism, and colonialism, and how to defeat a giant crab. Authoritarianism? They're in authority for a reason, Fish with Legs. If everyone followed the rules set in place by the human government, then there wouldn't be- for adults and kids. (laughs) New episodes on Mondays. You can find it wherever you find podcasts, and of course, on the Upford website. Okay, that's it. Bye! What Mega Man boss would make the most terrifying kaiju? I, for one, want to be the first to welcome our new kaiju overlords. How would Adam Sandler fit in the MCU? I injected myself with the Green Goblin serum. Debate This is a podcast that asks the questions about your favorite video games and comics that no one is asking. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you download podcasts. And on social media at DebateThisCast. None of that is mind control. It's so close. It's not so close.